Good morning. You can remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. Well, good morning. Um, My name is Vincent. I am one of the elders here at Redemption Peoria, and I'm super jacked to be with you. It's only been a year since I was up here last time, so if you were here last summer, uh, you got to experience that. Hopefully, my performance last summer is an an indicator how long it took me to be up here again, so, um, but I am uh, excited to be with you this morning, and as Stephen mentioned, Josh Miles and April, they had their baby this week, and we're super pumped about that and excited, Um, but as with the circle of life. Um, Our hearts are saddened this morning as well as we lost a dear brother uh, this week. Um, Some of you uh, may already know or or may not know um, David Beeman, um, who has been faithful to Christ and to our congregation since the beginning, um, had a brain aneurysm this week, and and God called him home. We're sad about that. Our hearts um, ache and, and, and grieve for him or for his family, for Vicky and his kids. Um, and so we just wanted to, one, let you guys know, in case you guys do know Dave, he was such an awesome servant, and um, he set a great example from being at PPAC, and you probably saw him on a teardown team uh, where he served uh, faithfully, uh, going up and down the aisles after, picking up our trash and our coffee, and um, we're going to miss him. So um, let's pray for Vicki and, and the kids um, this morning and uh, lift them up before we get going here. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for who you are. And as we grieve um, the loss of Dave, we um, are excited and hopeful uh, because we know he's with you. But even in that truth, it's hard to um, see through some of the grief sometimes, God. And we just pray for Vicki and the kids that as they grieve, that they can also celebrate and rejoice David's life. Um, we just pray for peace for them that as you have comforted us, we just pray that you use us and our body, our congregation, his church family, to comfort Vicki and the kids. God, help us to do that. And as we dig into the word here this morning, we just pray that you open all of our hearts and our minds to receive whatever message that you have uniquely prepared for each of us to hear, God. Help us to be true to the word. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been here, Um, or if this is your first time, we, as Redemption, we're one of ten congregations, and we go through books of the Bible um, individually all throughout the year, and we are in the book of Ephesians, going verse by verse, and we started in January, and we're five months into it, and we're only halfway done. So we're going to be done sometime this fall uh, before Christmas, and so we're going to keep going at it uh, with where we've been at in Ephesians. So the first few 
months or for several months up until this point, just give you some context of where we're at, this transition from chapters one through three is pretty big. It's a pretty um, important transition going from orthodoxy, which is a fancy word for doctrine or what we believe, everything that Paul's been laying out in the first three chapters, and now we're transitioning to orthopraxis or orthopraxy, just another fancy word for putting what we believe into practice, right? So this is a way that Paul has written several times. We see this form in the book of Romans where Paul takes 11 chapters to lay out doctrine, to lay out theology, to lay out these foundational beliefs of our faith. And then he transitions in chapter 12 into practice. Because we believe this, this is how you should behave. And we see the same transition in Ephesians um, going from 3 to chapter 4. So as we see in Ephesians 3, verse 20, at the end of chapter 3, Paul in verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or, or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Last week, John Demeter took us through what amen means. At the end of that uh, prayer, when uh, Paul says this, it's It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. It's this word having to do with the truth. Or so it is. It is so. Let it be. At the end of this prayer, in this context, Paul is saying, look, everything I just laid out is true. And I put it to you to now put it into practice. And so um, that's where we pick up in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1, right? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I therefore, since... All of this doctrine, all of these foundational beliefs are true. Because you believe this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But getting from belief to behavior can be a little bit tricky and challenging at times. On a basic level, what you believe will manifest itself in your behavior. Think about it in terms of um, a specific culture, excuse me, or a, a group that you might be a part of. Like if you have a job, a corporate culture, you probably all heard that term. When you go to work at a place, there is a belief system that that company believes in, and they want you, based on their belief system, to behave a certain way. The same is true on a sports team. If you're playing on a sports team or athletic team, there's a philosophy that that team or that coach believes in, and he wants you to carry out that philosophy and how you behave on the court, or even in your family, right? As clerks, I don't know how many times I've said, hey, kids, because we are clerks, we expect you to behave a certain way. My college degree um, is in hotel and restaurant management. And so when I graduated, I wanted to work for a company that had a very specific belief system, right? Similar to mine. So I went to work for this company called Houston's. And so it's a restaurant company, and part of their belief system was in um, extreme precision or exactness or accuracy. And so because that's what they believed, they expected all of us employees to behave a certain way to the nth degree, meaning, hey, if you needed chopped onions, the chopped onions needed to be a quarter inch by a quarter inch. Not a half inch by a quarter inch, not three quarters of an inch by an eighth, quarter by a quarter. And if it was off, those onions got discarded and we redid it. They were committed to this exactness. After Ritz-Carlton, or after the Houston's, I worked for the Ritz-Carlton, and they had a belief system that basically said, all of our employees are as important as the guests that we serve. They believed in that. They even had this motto, we as employees are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. They believed that. And so they behaved a certain way to carry that out. To the extent, this is my favorite part of working there, their employee meal, their cafeteria food 
It wasn't just leftovers or vending machines. They had chefs hired to serve the employees at, for their breaks and employee meals. So it was full spread. It was amazing. So they believed um, that employees were as important as their guests, and they believed that um, if we treated them well, they'd have a better chance of carrying out their behavior. So it's true no matter what. So LeBron James feels that being a bully on a basketball court gets him to more wins. Yes, I'm a LeBron hater, it's, and I own it. And it's all good. Yes, yes. So that's all right. But seriously, no matter, even in our family, so Diana and I, um, we have a belief that our relationship, our marriage relationship, is the most important relationship in our household. And it's the most important gift we can give our kids. So our kids are important, but we behave in a way that suggests our marriage is, our marriage relationship is more important. And so our kids are just a distant second right? And, and it, it plays out this way. I kid you not, uh, uh, several years ago, we had some friends of ours that said, do you guys even care about your kids? Because we, we focus a lot on our relationship. And of course, we care about our kids and we love them dearly. But with, hopefully they would say the same. Um, but whether you're part of a sports team or a family or a corporate culture, whatever, in order for your beliefs to be carried out for um, you to behave in a way that they want, those beliefs have to be encouraged. They have to be cultivated. They have to be taught, right? You don't just show up at a job the first day and automatically know what to do or know how to behave. These beliefs have to be instilled in you. So any group or um, sports team or any label that gets put on you, if you're a part of something, there's expectations on you to behave a certain way. You work at a company, you're expected to behave. If you are part of the Clark family, you're expected to behave. And so um, our faith is no different. Because we call ourselves Christians, you're expected to behave a certain way. It's even true of, of race, right? So I'm identified as a black man. Um, some of my old real estate signs used to have my picture on it, right? So I remember getting this call one day from this lady. He said, hey, um, I need to talk to Vincent. This is Vincent. Uh, Vincent Clark? Yep, that's me. What can I do for you? Well, I'm staring at one of your real estate signs um, outside one of your houses. Okay. What can I do for you? Uh, I'm sorry, it just, it just caught me off guard. This is Vincent? Yeah, yeah, this is Vincent. This is, this is what I said, I kid you not. Do I not sound black enough? That's what I said. I probably shouldn't have said it, but I did. So... There, there, the point is there's an expectation, even because of who I'm identified as, people inside of that same community or group and people outside of that group have an expectation. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just, it is what it is, right? And the irony is that the lady who was calling, I could tell, was black because she sounded a certain way. <laughs> right? So uh, it, it, it's a trip. But the reality is that no matter what group you're a part of, there's going to be expectations put on you. And it's true of your political party. It's true of you if you're in the military, no matter what. Here's the problem with letting those groups or those labels define you. For most of us, certainly true of me and I assume most of you, you can be part of multiple groups with different belief systems at the same time. So what do you do? How do you know in in what situation, in any situation, who wins? What belief system wins. Sometimes I'm going to behave this way depending on what community I'm with, or sometimes I'm going to behave this way. That's a challenge. So I got a, I got a theory. I want you to take a look at when we, how we get from beliefs to behavior. I, I made this model of 
We're talking about behavior, right? It's not scientific at all. We're not even going to put it up. So we have beliefs, right? Well, in order to get the right behavior, usually your beliefs are connected to your behavior at some point, right? We want the, this type of behavior. Well, it's based on our beliefs, right? What, what we do with this is the challenge. How you get from here to there is a challenge, right? Because there's so many things that can impact your belief in order to get to um, the behavior side of things. So there's no way to expect your kids, um, your employees, the people on your team to behave a certain way just by you telling them. I mean, when's the last time that because you told someone to do something, they just did it because you told them to? It might happen. It probably happens temporarily, but there's zero chance, I shouldn't say zero chance, there's less likelihood of having a long-term impact on behavior unless there's buy-in. Unless there's buy-in from the people that you want to behave a certain way, meaning there's something in the middle of this um, slide that I left out, and in the middle it's conviction, right? Or a development of values, right? In order to get to behavior, there is this idea that you're, you have a set of beliefs, it has to move through conviction or a development of a value in order for you to get sustainable, meaningful behavior, right? So, but getting to conviction isn't always that easy, right? If belief never moves through conviction and gets to behavior, your chances of getting to the right behavior or sustainable behavior are slim to none. You might get it temporarily, but if it doesn't develop a value, it's a high likelihood you're not going to get it. So I believe in general that parachutes will open when you jump out of planes, right? But I'm not convicted enough to test it. And so you're not going to get me jumping out of a plane. You're not going to get the behavior of jumping out of a plane because I'm not convinced in my own mind that that parachute's going to open. I do believe it. But if you believe something, you're not willing to test it. Do you really believe it? So getting to conviction is tough. So if you look at this, belief, conviction, behavior. Well, that path to conviction is tough because of all these circumstances that are impacting your ability to be convicted, right? Circumstances, your life situation. Um, maybe you had some childhood trauma. Uh, maybe you're grieving something right now. Maybe you're flat broke and you don't know how you're going to pay your bill. There's all these circumstances that are going to impact your conviction. And you know what's causing those circumstances? What you don't see is Satan. First Peter uh, tells us that Satan is just waiting. He's waiting to take advantage of these circumstances to get you, prevent you from developing a conviction. Because if you have a conviction, the, the likelihood of you carrying out the behavior goes up exponentially. If you have a conviction, if you believe that stealing is wrong, you have a conviction of it, then your circumstance shouldn't change it. Your circumstances will definitely impact your convictions, but they can't determine your convictions. Because if you believe that stealing is wrong, you living in poverty shouldn't be a justification for you shoplifting. It can't. If you believe that adultery is wrong, having sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse, if you believe that's wrong, then your spouse having a low libido or even a sickness can't be the justification for you having a relationship with someone who's not your spouse. It can't. Sex outside of marriage, pre-marriage, pre-marriage, or sorry, premarital sex. A lot of people believe that, but is it a conviction of yours? Just because you've been engaged for two years and you're going to get married anyway, that can't be a justification or rational, rationalization 
for you having sex outside of your marriage. Or, I've been married twice. I'm 50 years old. That premarital stuff is for younger kids. I'm a mature believer. That doesn't apply to me. If it's a conviction, that shouldn't be the justification for you to engage in that behavior. Right? So, Satan is definitely trying to get you off of that. Right? But the good news is that the Holy Spirit is with you as well. It's the Holy Spirit that gets you to conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict you of the righteousness. The Holy Spirit will convict you to um, lock into that belief. Conviction meaning a strongly held belief or a certainty of something, right? The Holy Spirit will help you get there. And it'll overcome all the satanic mess that he keeps trying to put in front of you, right? So, great. So now you get to conviction. Now what? I got to still have to get to behavior. Easy peasy, right? Nope. Satan's there too. He's tempting us. He's deceiving us with all kinds of things to get us off our mark, to get us from carrying out the behavior the same way he did Adam and Eve. He's there with you as well, trying to get you. You believe it. And just because it's a conviction now, it doesn't mean it guarantees your behavior, but it gives you a, a higher likelihood, right? Because we all know that temptation, despite our best conviction, our temptation, the Satan takes us down. Satan is the ruler of this world and he knows it. He's waiting around like a, a lion on the prowl waiting to take you down. But there's good news here too. The Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that he won't allow us to be tempted with anything that we can't overcome. Right? And it, whatever we're tempted with, it's common to man, the Bible says. There's nothing unique about what you're going through and God will always give you a way out. He'll always give you a way out. So, Without the Holy Spirit, though, you don't stand a chance. You can't go from straight from belief to behavior because what it does is it cuts out the Holy Spirit. Satan is still there, and he's going to get you off of your game. He's really good at it. So you can't cut God out of the equation um, and expect to walk in a manner worthy. This language that Paul is using um, in terms of walking in a manner worthy. Because if you go, try to go straight to behavior, you're going to develop things like a checklist. This is where legalism comes in. You develop these, these lists of things to perform. When you only focus on behavior modification, you get things that um, you put on a list to determine whether you're right or wrong. That's not what the Bible wants. The Bible does want you to walk in a manner worthy, even in the way Paul describes it in uh, Philippians 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay? There's this constant... Uh, reminder and this put pressing against you need to be walking in a manner worthy because you are a believer and the only way to do that is to bathe yourself continually bathe and immerse yourself in the word of god you have to experience the holy spirit you have to dive into who god is okay deuteronomy 11 puts it this way fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads you have to be in the word. You have to cling to the word. You have to know the word. Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 6 says you have to move from elementary doctrine to spiritual maturity. Okay? You have to know who God is. Paul, God desperately wants you to know who God is. Proverbs 2 says it this way. Seek him, seek God like you would seek gold or silver. 
right? There should be this intentional pursuit of God. And Paul is desperate for you to know God. Look in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, why does Paul want you to do that? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's the same language through and through. There's no chance of you walking in a manner worthy, living a life for God, separate from the Holy Spirit or separate from knowing who he is. And as you dive into the word, as you get to know God, you'll see that the gospel is more than just John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So obviously that's critical. It's, it's essential for what you need to be saved, but it's not the whole gospel. That only talks about the vertical relationship that you have. John Devener introduced this language of vertical and horizontal, and John 3.16 only focuses on what God has done for you in this vertical relationship. But as you'll see as you dive into the Word, God cares desperately about your horizontal relationships. I mean, more than half of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we interact with each other. It's critical that we understand the full breadth of the gospel. Because God ultimately uses us as people to impact others, to impact his other children, right? It can't just be this vertical relationship. It has to be a holistic gospel that applies to every aspect of your life, not just your relationship with God, okay? So Sean introduced this slide a few weeks ago, this essentials, uh, in unity in essentials, liberty in uh, non-essentials, and in all things charity or, or love. I probably mix up those words a little bit. But this unity and essentials, right? Christians get tripped up on what is essential. I want to walk in a life or walk in a manner worthy, but what are these essentials to do that? I would put understanding or committing to essentials or committing to doctrine on the side of essentials. Meaning, I've had Christians tell me, hey, look, the only thing on the essential side is John 3.16. Nothing else. One thing on there. One thing on that list. Well, it is true. It's essential for you to be saved, but there are more essentials that have to do with our Christian walk in our life. There are essentials that God wants us to live a certain way. And there's essentials that need to be on that list. And one of them is knowing God. Understanding who God is, right? Understanding these doctrines. All these doctrines that, that uh, Paul laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first 11 chapters of Romans, is critical to living a life in a manner worthy, what you believe about these doctrines or this theology, this foundational belief system is critical to how you live your life. Doctrine and theology is what prompted the Protestant Reformation. It was all because of understanding of doctrine and where you land on those things. And to this day, Catholics and Protestants definitely live their lives differently but claim the same Jesus. Well, the differences are based on those doctrines, right? What you believe about the doctrine of justification. Are you instantly justified at conversion or does that come at a later point? Well, how you understand those two things is critical to how you behave. But hear me on this. I'm not saying that these doctrines is critical for all believers to agree on all of these specific doctrines. Not at all. I'm saying it's essential that you commit to some level of understanding of knowing what you believe in, right? There are plenty of believers on plenty of doctrines that vehemently disagree on what that doctrine is that we'll see each other in heaven. That's okay. 
So from the standpoint of John 3.16, how you feel about some of these doctrines isn't necessarily essential to your salvation, but it's definitely critical to how you live out your life and, and how you behave, right? It wasn't until I dove into a lot of these doctrines, I don't know, 15 years ago, where my belief officially moved to conviction because I dove into the word and I was desperately committed. I was challenged on some theological stuff by someone. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I felt not good, really inadequate because I was claiming something I believed, but I had no basis of understanding of what I was saying. So I dove into the word and the Holy Spirit just, he just bombarded me with all sorts of really, really cool stuff. And it was great. And, but it's because of those understandings that I'm now able to live a life a little more compassionate, a little more gentle, a little more patient, a little more empathetic. Those of you who only know me in the past few years, I know you, you might be thinking like, this is the better version of you? Like, I promise you, the, the 15 year ago, Vincent, a lot, a lot rougher. And it's only because of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to me through the word. So these doctrines are critical. They're critical to your behavior. John MacArthur even puts this this way. Until you know God's wisdom, until the basis of doctrine is there, you won't know how to live. You have to know God's wisdom. Paul believed this is true as well. That's why he encouraged you so desperately to get to know God, because he knows that once you have an understanding or some level of commitment to knowing God is, it's going to impact how you live your life. So the first three chapters got the, all the doctrine laid out is intentional. Because Paul knows this. Paul didn't start in chapter 4 and says, okay guys, here's verse 1, start living a life in a manner worthy. Well, without all the doctrine setting up the foundation, he knows that that would be futile. Because the first three chapters are just filled with all sorts of stuff that God has done for you. The basis of our theology. And if you forgot, let me remind you. Okay, because there's a lot. In Ephesians, starting in in chapter 1, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. We have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. He lavished upon us the riches of his grace. We've obtained an inheritance. We were dead in our trespasses, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive. And together with Christ, we were saved by grace through faith. We have been reconciled to God through the cross. Through Jesus, we have access to the Father. We are no longer aliens or strangers, but fellow citizens and, uh, with the saints. We've been made fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise through Jesus. We've been given a power through the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can live in our hearts through faith. And we will be filled with the fullness of God. Can I get an amen? Right? It's crazy. There's a ton of stuff in there. There's so rich and just deep with how God loves us. We need to understand what that stuff is because it's going to impact how we behave. You're going to keep hearing me say this over and over. And even Paul ended that verse, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 20 with an amen because he's laying it down. This is true. And because this is true, he's putting in front of us as believers. Do you believe this? Do you see what God has done for you? Are you convicted of it? And that's how he starts chapter four, verse one. Because of that, I therefore, therefore, because all of this is true, because therefore this is what is the foundation of our faith, I urge you, I implore you, I beg of you, because of that, to live a life worthy of the call to which you've been called. If you believe this stuff, your behavior should reflect that. And as you move through life and interact with people, they should get examples or they should get ideas that based on how you live and how they experience you, some idea of what you believe based on those interactions with you. 
Paul even says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to believers and non-believers, we are the aroma of Christ. Aroma? Do you smell like Jesus? When people interact with you, when you're going through life and, and having interpersonal relationships with people, do they get whiffs of Jesus? They should. But a lot of times, they don't. And why? It's because we, we take not the essential list, it's the non-essential list that we put in front of our relationships to determine whether we're good enough, whether we're living right. And it's these non-essential lists that are hindering people from seeing Jesus clearly. You guys know what's on these lists, right? I don't cuss. I definitely don't smoke. I don't dance. Right? I wear... <laughs> I see you, Lizzie. Um... I, wear, I don't wear flip-flops to church. You should never wear shorts to church, that's for sure. Right? All these things on our non-essentials list. But going back to that, the slide that Sean put in front of us, unity and essentials and what in non-essentials? Liberty. There needs to be liberty in non-essentials because they don't, they, don't make a, a, they don't matter at all in terms of your worth to God or you living right or in a manner worthy. When we hear living in a manner worthy, we immediately take our list and project that onto everybody else right? How I'm doing it is the right way. And what does that get? When you think your list is the most important thing to God, you get legalism, you get judgment, and what do you turn into? Before you know it, you're a Pharisee. Can you think of anything good that's been connected to a Pharisee? It's their non-essential list is formed by a lot of your life experiences and a lot of your uniqueness and how God has created you. You might have certain weaknesses or proclivities, so you stay away from certain things. You, your family of origin dramatically impacts this non-essential list and what goes on there. But there needs to be liberty in this list. Just because you believe in something passionately doesn't mean somebody else does, and you can't project your rightness onto somebody else's list because... They don't feel the same as you do. There has to be liberty. And Paul even takes us through this liberty in Romans chapter 14. Look what he says. Romans 14.1. Not to quarrel over opinions. 14.4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully, what? Convinced or convicted in his own mind. Verses 12 and 13. So each of us will give an account of himself before God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to put a, not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Guys, this is, this is all the non-essential stuff we've been talking about. And Paul says, stop. It's not important. If one of you says, I'm not going to eat meat that has any blood in it, it's well done all day long. And Vincent says, there's blood all over mine coming off the plate right? Dripping onto the floor. That's how I like to eat steak. And God says, hey, neither one of you are right. Stop. It doesn't matter. Don't pass judgment on each other. Because look, you go to uh, chapter 14, verse 20. And these are in my, before I read these words in my own head, I can just, I just sense Paul putting something before these words. And he says, for crying out loud, people, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Stop. You're not essential list. Stop, stop, stop. Liberty, liberty, liberty. 
So a couple weeks ago, um, I helped run a landscape company and with uh, a couple guys, and um, we are trying to get this big, big client, right? Trying to go after this big account. So we're putting all our stuff together, whatever, and we get prepared, and, and so this guy calls a meeting. Great, we're going to go meet him, and we're going to throw it down, and we're going to get this, this work, right? All right, where's the meeting? Tilted Kilt restaurant. Oh, man. If you guys don't know what Tilted Kilt is, it's just a restaurant that um, part of their gimmick is to have, we'll say, scantily clad um, servers, usually women, to accentuate certain bodily parts um, and serve you, right? This is the environment. So I'm, I'm like, oh, come on, what do I do with this, right? Because I have a belief. I'm pretty confident I had a conviction, so now what do I do with that? And I'm struggling with it, right? And I tell, I tell the other two guys who are believers, the other two guys, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I don't know what to do. So what happened? Meeting got canceled. I'm like, yes, praise Jesus. But it got rescheduled. You'll never guess where I got rescheduled to. Hooters. I'm like, come on. So same conviction is still there. And the other two guys um, who are believers and love Jesus, they weren't as convicted to go into that environment to where I was. I knew it was going to be a stumbling block for me. And so I didn't go. But the other two were great and they went. So here's what Romans 14 is getting at. I had an issue with it. They didn't. So the challenge is as believers not to pass judgment on me for not going, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me. Of course you can go there. That's ridiculous. They didn't do that. But then the challenge is on me too, not to pass judgment on them for not being as convicted as me. This is where the liberty comes in. It's critical that we can pull this off with each other. First Corinthians 1, Paul takes us through some of this uh, when he noticed division in the church, because that's what these non-essentials do. In 1 Corinthians 1, they were fighting over who was better. Did you get baptized by Paul? Did you get baptized by Apollos? And Paul's like, stop, stop. I didn't baptize any of you. Thank you. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, except for a couple. But you guys, you're focusing on the wrong things, right? Paul is acknowledging he's not the standard either, right? And so in where he takes us in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. So he's acknowledging he has a specific purpose, He wasn't there to baptize. He was there to preach the gospel. But notice what he says. I'm here to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's what we do when we take our non-essential list and think this is the most important to Jesus. We empty the cross of its power. But guess what? Your lists, they're great and important to you. But hear me on this. this. If you only remember one thing today, please remember this. You are not the standard. You're not. But our non-essential lists make us think that we're the standard, and so we try to project that onto other people. The uniqueness that God's created us with, we think, is the standard, but it's not. You thinking you're the standard and introducing your non-essential list creates division. So you might be wondering how in the world, with all of our uniqueness and all of our differences, can we ever get on the same page with some of this stuff. Well, here's the irony. God intentionally created us to be different because we all have a role to play. Just as Paul mentioned, he came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. We all have a unique role to play and we are part of this body that 1 Corinthians 12 lets us know there is all of us. We collectively make up the body of Christ and we all have individual roles to play. 
So stop trying to get other people to be like you. If we were all left arms, oh, that doesn't make up a body. There's a saying I've always liked referring to marriages. If both you and your spouse are exactly the same, then what? One of you isn't necessary. It sounds, it sounds cruel, but it's true, right? If we're all the same, then how in the world could this glorify God? But even though we're all different, there are ways to collectively come together on some foundational truths, some essentials that do exist that will impact our behavior, and God desperately wants us to be unified in that. So before any group that you're a part of, before your job, before whatever label gets put on you, before my family, before my sports team, before my blackness, my identity has to be firmly rooted in Christ. It's the only thing that can trump all of those other groups. When you're conflicted with which belief system plays out, your commitment to Christ, your identity in Christ has to win. So what are some of those things that should be universal for all of us believers? Despite where we come from, despite personalities, despite what may be influencing our non-essential list, where does Paul start to tell us, well, hey, separate from all that, God made you unique for a reason, but as a believer, there should be some consistency between all of us. And Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. So he tells us to walk in a manner worthy with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Sounds easy enough, right? Have you ever noticed that God doesn't give us a list of easy things to do? It's always the hard stuff, right? He never tells us to, hey, be super selfish. Hey, don't be generous. Hey, if it feels good, do it, right? God doesn't do any of that. He tells us the hard stuff because he knows these things that he desperately wants us to do are not easy for us, and they don't come naturally. He has to tell us. The same way you have to tell your kids. They won't naturally choose what's right. You have to tell them to do so, right? And more importantly, so John referenced last week some of the importance of these things, why it's critical that we get this right and that we think our behavior somehow is what makes us right with God, our non-essential list. And we can pull this off. We've got it right What it does is it takes the focus off of Jesus and puts the focus on us. And it doesn't give God the glory. The most important thing, God cares desperately far more about his glory than he does about your circumstantial or worldly comfort. There's a reason why he made us a certain way. There's a reason why you have the life that you have, and it's to give him glory. But come on, I mean, look at the verse 2, right? With all humility and gentleness, bear with, with, with one another in love. I'm sure you've probably been able to pull off bearing with somebody. You grit your teeth and get through it. But do you do it in love? I, I mean, I haven't. There's been times, I, hopefully I have, but, but I haven't, right? It's easy to not do it in love. It's super hard to do it in love. But then Paul cranks it up a notch, right? Look in verse 3. Eager to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace eager. Are you eager to maintain this unity? I mean, eager. Eager literally means enthusiastic or with impatient desire. Impatient desire. Do you have impatient desire to maintain unity with other believers? Sometimes, but not all the time. 
It's because we're making ourselves the standard, and we expect everyone to come to us, right? Everyone needs to conform to our list. But in God's infinite wisdom and sovereign grace, he uniquely created us all to reflect a portion of who he is, right? Individually, he gave us experiences and a story to give him glory so that people, when they interact with you, should see a glimpse of Jesus, should smell like Jesus, the fullness, excuse me, the fullness of God is complex, right? The body that we're told that we make up of, the full body of Christ, of God, is complex. And none of us on our own can fully reflect who Jesus is on our own. We need each other and we need to be unified. But how, do, how are we unified with all of our non-essential lists different? Does Paul know how hard it is to be eager to maintain unity with someone who has a different non-essential list? It's tough. But Paul says, no, no, you need to be eager to do that. And what's going to hold us together? Look what he says in in verse 3. The bond of peace. The bond of peace is what holds us together to create this body of Christ. Without peace, the body falls apart. And others don't get a clear glimpse of who Jesus was because the body is broken, right? There has to be liberty in these essentials that are causing division. Okay, Diana and I have someone in our life right now who we love dearly that um, they've determined that one day on the calendar is more important than, than, than another day. We don't, we don't see eye to eye on that. And it's even been suggested that because we don't see as they do, our opinion may not be from God. That's tough. We need liberty in these non-essentials because it's the non-essentials that break this bond of peace. Can you be eager to maintain that unity? Can you be peaceful in the midst of some of these challenges? Remember, you're not the standard. So Paul picks this up in verse 4. Well, how do we get through this? With all these different examples of how God has created us, where should we set our face to. Well, God tells us. Chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Walking in a manner worthy has nothing to do with your non-essential list. There's plenty of essentials that God takes us through that he wants us to lay out. Loving your neighbor, be generous, be humble, be patient, Care for the orphans and widows. Care for the oppressed. Invite the homeless into your home. The fruits of the Spirit should be evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. These are the essentials that should be existing universally through all of us believers. And walking in a manner doesn't mean you walk with your head down in guilt over some sin that you committed. That's not a manner worthy of God because that would suggest God hasn't created a way to overcome that, that you empty the power of the cross. Jesus has overcome that sin. So if you're walking through life with high anxiety or guilt, you're suggesting that what Christ did for you isn't enough. That's not in a manner worthy. You're not living in the the freedom that Christ died to release you from the shackles for intentionally. I know it's easier said than done, right? So don't 
make a mistake in what I'm saying. Please, please, please don't focus on the behavior part of that model. Don't focus on behavior modification because as soon as you go straight to behavior and try to modify behavior, it's, it's not sustainable and it's dangerous. You can't skip over chapters one and three in Ephesians and expect to start in chapter four with the right mindset and understanding of how this plays out. You have to understand what your beliefs are. You have to commit to the Holy Spirit. You have to commit to getting in the word so the Holy Spirit has an opportunity to convict you to give you the best chance of carrying out your faith. Now, and when you do this, the Holy Spirit will reveal whatever truth, whatever understanding he wants you to know in his timing. And it might be completely different, and it probably will be completely different than any other human on this planet. So don't compare. And once you're excited about some of these truths that that he's revealed to you, or because of your uniqueness, he wants you to do this specifically, don't cast that on somebody else. Because he has a specific purpose for somebody else. But you have to get to know who God is, right? People say, I love God. People say all the time, I love God. And I'm sure that's probably true. But just like people, you can't fully love someone unless you know them. And you have to commit to knowing who God is. And he desperately wants you to know him. Even Peter, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God is no different. You need to get to know God. And the only way to do that is to immerse yourself and cloak yourself in God's word. Now, as believers in here, this unity, if we can pull this off, will be amazing, right? The impact that we'll have, not just on non-believers, but specifically on believers, is huge. But if you're a believer in here, there's a chance, or a non-believer in here, there's a chance that as you have interacted with believers in your life, there's a chance that our non-essential list has been at the forefront of that relationship. And that non-essential list has prevented you from seeing a clear glimpse of who Jesus is and has actually pushed you away. The opposite of what our desires would be for you. And for that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that as believers, we can't figure out how to maintain this unity so that you get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. As a believer, you have to know that your non-essential list, or even your essential list, isn't going to have the impact that you want if you lead with that with a non-believer. Using these lists to impact somebody else, they're only going to go so far without a relationship. You need to have relationship. You need to have credibility. You need to have Uh, an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. You're not going to do that if you lead with your list of everything that you're against, right? My first restaurant that I opened when I started on this journey, my first partner was gay. I had a relationship with him. We worked together. He was great. But I remember struggling, man, I'm about to go into business with this guy. What do I do with that? We disagree on a lot of stuff. So I remember going to counsel, uh, to to get counsel from someone who I trust, Fred Beasley, who married us. Um, He's been great several years throughout my life with giving me some, some wisdom. And he said, he needs to see Jesus. He ain't going to see Jesus by you trying to hammer him with something. You have a relationship with him. Non-believers need to see God first, not more of you. So don't get in the way. It's hopeful that through our unity, we can create a real an accurate image of who Jesus is. But it's not going to happen through division. And as we keep focusing on our non-essential list, it's the division that we're going to get. 
So you might be feeling overwhelmed. You might be tempted to focus on the list, the behavior modification. How on earth do I walk worthy? I'm going to start impacting some of these things on my list. And I'm telling you, don't do that, right? I'm going to leave you with this. In case you're curious, if you just need somewhere to start, start with this. John 13, verse 34. Jesus is talking to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Just start there. It sounds simple enough, but I know it's challenging. But if we start there, we'll have our best chance of walking in a manner worthy of the call that we've been called. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for how you love us. I'm grateful that despite our best efforts to screw it up, you continue to stay faithful to us. We know that you desperately want us to know you because you passionately and desperately want to know us. Help us dive into the word, not out of some checklist or obligation, but create in us a desire to get to know you. Help us to be still and listen to the Holy Spirit as we read through the word, as we interact with other believers who you sent to impact us, God. Help us to be open to your wisdom, to your calling. Help give us the guilt-free mental standpoint to fully accept the freedom that you died for. We're forever in your doubt, and there's certainly nothing that we've done to deserve how much you love us. Equip us today. Encourage us today. Inspire us today. Help give us conviction to leave this place, to walk in a manner worthy of the call. God, we want to be unified to you. We don't want to cause division in your body. And through peace, we can hold this together. Help us to do that, God. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.